You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. All right. Hello and welcome back. I am so very excited to share a huge announcement with you guys, one that I've been teasing for a little bit. I hopefully get to announce it next week or the week after. It is for the podcast and things are going to change up and I'm fucking stoked. But very excited about today's episode. Today's episode is with Kiri Oliver. Kiri Oliver sings and plays guitar in the Brooklyn pop punk quartet Early Riser. We had a wonderful conversation about the personal journey of songwriting, improv, and navigating the creative landscape while collaborating. You can check them out at earlyrisermusic.com. Their new record, Vocations, will be out this Friday, or today, March 26, 2021, on streaming platforms and for vinyl pre-order via AF Records. Uh, you can check out Early Riser on Instagram. The link is in the show notes, as well as some of the essays written by Kiri that I used as a reference for researching and discussing this podcast. Very excited to have Kiri here. The record's fun as hell and great, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Without further ado, Kiri Oliver. Yeah, cool. But uh, yeah, Kiri, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Hell yeah, I'm super excited about this. Um, I've been listening to the record. Thank you for sending me a copy of it. Oh yeah, um, I'm glad super you excited did it. about it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge sucker for cello uh, as well, too. And uh, it's, I think, an underutilized instrument. I uh, played one for a little bit back in middle school wh- just because they I played violin and then the cellist got like booted from the class. And so they sat me down to play it. I played it for like a month. That's uh, but it just, just, I love where that voice sits in it. So, so good. So, me but too. My, uh, my first question that I wanted to ask you was when did uh, the music get you? Like, when did you first realize that that, that music was for you? Um, I think I was about eight and I would just, I remember mostly listening to tapes with my parents in the car. Like we would drive up to Connecticut to see my grandparents and they had, um, a couple, you know, little zip pouches full of tapes and we would just rotate through all those. So my earliest memories are getting really into just a really random selection of bands from Billy Joel to Enya to Queen, um, and, just not having any context for it, you know, like I would just really get into one album. I wouldn't know anything about them. I wouldn't know if, if anyone liked them. And I just kind of, I love the purity of that. Just like being a kid and just finding what you like before you know anything else. Totally. I, I love that. One of the first ways I got to music was in the car as well. It seems like anytime you were in the car was the radio or a limited selection of tapes. So even if they, your grandparents had a, a whole bunch of tapes, there was still only what, like 15 or something. Uh, and I wonder if kids, uh, like super young kids right now, like my nephews are gonna, it'll be a good thing for sure that they have access to unlimited music to listen to. Cause it's going to be coming from like a digital device or, or something like that. But there's something missing with that whole, like, you have to only listen to the music that your parents or your grandparents had or your aunts and uncles or whatever. And that's a, yeah, that's a, a romantic notion for me. Cause it could have, you know, those melodies that you first were hearing are definitely still inside of you. That's where you're going to get some of the nostalgia from, at least for me, that's how it works. I wonder, I wonder how that'll work. Definitely. I mean, I read recently that kids now consume music from every time period uh, all at once and also media movies, TVs and stuff, but it's like, they don't, necessarily have a sense of like old versus news. Like they'll listen to the Beatles. They'll listen to Billie Eilish. It's all just kind of there. So they have this totally different kind of current experience of all eras at once, which is very different from mine. And I do feel nostalgic and grateful for that experience of just 
taking in what was on the radio, what was on MTV and VH1, what was in my parents' like 30 tapes and just getting really into that. Yeah, that's I never thought about it that way before. That's awesome. That's super, super fascinating. Uh, so what I know, uh, I've read two of your essays that you are on TalkHouse, which are uh, uh, really uh, hard-hitting for me. One of them is specifically, which I'll get, get to later. But the other one, you wrote a really interesting parallel of um, – you know, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of the way that you measured your success or looked at your own musical career as compared to uh, MGMT, who happened to go to the same school, lived in the same dorm. Uh, and I found that uh, such a really interesting way to frame that whole vision of your own success. But there was one thing in there that I wanted to, to jump in on for the beginning of your career playing like punk bands and stuff. And that was how you met the people that you were first playing with. Like, I know that I think we're part of the first generation that started to meet people on message boards and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So you could kind of reach out and find them. So you met some people at a show. Yeah. Like in the Connecticut punk scene when I was in college, I think I met one of them on a message board and then you just sort of go to shows and say, Hey, do you know a drummer? Hey, do you know a drummer <laughs> until you find a drummer? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then that guitarist and I ended up having a band here in New York, like years later, but all, all from the, uh, the CT punks message board connection. So, yeah. So I looked that up and I was pretty sure because we had, when we were first starting out, when we were still living in Scranton before we moved to Philadelphia, we would just go to every regional message board, try to find bands and then say, Hey, can we trade shows with you or try to like just post, you know, just spam our, our demos and stuff like that. And I could have sworn that we'd been to CT punks. Unfortunately, I just went there and it's now like an Asian language back pages, uh, redirection that is just like all porn and stuff. So that was pretty funny and hilarious for what happened to a bunch of those. <laughs> That's how those things sports. go. I hope, I hope right. that the punks in yeah, CT are used- still thriving and yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. That was actually in uh, Connecticut. It was one of the first places that we started to play outside of Scranton because there was a huge ska scene. Yeah. Ska and street yeah. punk. Yeah, the, they took the, the most melodic and then the least melodic, in a sense, went went the full uh, uh, ends of the spectrum. Yes. Um, so your time is there, and you relayed in the essay of starting a bunch of different bands and realizing at one point that that's what you wanted to do was find the band and make that your career, quit everything else, and you went on a series of um, you know playing in other bands. And I wonder, playing music with so many different people and especially at later on, you mentioned that you had played keyboards mm-hmm. in a couple of bands. I know all my friends that are, are good pianists and, and keyboardists end up getting tapped to do a lot of stuff because there's no one in the band can play it. So it might be like an auxiliary recording situation or something like that. D- did you, were you able to pick up on the social aspects of those bands and the way that they wrote their music and take what you wanted from them and what you didn't want kind of turn it into what early riser is now? That's an interesting question. You said the social aspects? Yeah, because it's a big thing to try to keep everybody on the same page. You know? That's really, so that's you a really good question. You've obviously been in bands if you're thinking of that. Because like, <laughs> I think some people would think that, you know, you play in a band and you take away what you want to musically. But it really is like the band management aspect that you take away of like how everyone sure. got along. And, you know, like if. I had my own band. This is what I would do. You know, like one of the bands imploded (laughs) because there were five of us and we all asked the singer like, Hey, could you just loop us in on decisions more? Like we know like you're the singer, you can have the final say, but can you just like tell us what you're thinking uh, before you sign us up for stuff? And she got so (laughs) mad and couldn't handle it that she basically broke up the band instead of having a conversation with us about how to make decisions together. So 
definitely learn stuff like that about, uh, you know, just being super collaborative and communicative and making sure that everyone is on the same page and good with what you're doing. Very, very basic part of being a band that a lot of people don't grasp, especially if they're, you know, people who are just like super into themselves and, you know, they think that their talent is just the be all end all and they don't realize how interpersonal and complicated it is to be in a group with other people. Totally. And I don't mean to uh, self-deprecate, I guess, the both of us, but musicians and artists aren't necessarily known for, they are known for their aloofness to an extent. And a lot of times like uh, running the show is kind of lives in the abstract and doesn't really come across very easily, especially when there's like, you know, your own personal egos tied up in music. And like you had just mentioned the example someone was so offended that they would have to be collaborative, that they imploded it on itself. You know, like it's, uh, I see it all the time in music. There's been tours that we were on where, you know, massive successful bands just had such poor communication skills that they like, uh, imploded. And mm-hmm. that's why I used to laugh so much about that Metallica documentary where I, I've never seen it f- to be, you know, completely transparent. But I know that they like sat around with like a group therapist. And at the time I was like, that's so stupid. And I'm like, well, actually, a group of people working together for 20, 30 years. This totally makes a lot of sense. It's a and great I, and it's, idea. Uh, I it was awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of bands could probably benefit from that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so there's been a, kind of jump into vocations. You guys newest record right now. Um, for your guys' previous LP, from what I understand, it was a collection of songs that you had written over a very long period of time. I think you said 10 years or 11 yeah. years or something like that. So what was it like to kind of condense that songwriting into this much smaller period? Did you have to pick up new habits? Was there like a new approach that you took? I did. Yeah. I mean, um, as you had mentioned before, like I had wanted to lead my own band for so long but it just never really came together and I was playing another band. So when we made the first record, it was really just me pulling together all these different songs that I had written in different periods of my life and uh, that I felt were the strongest and thematically fit together um, and, and shape that into a record. But once that was done and finally behind me, which was like a huge accomplishment, then I could really focus on just sort of writing in the present and doing what I guess other bands do, which is, you know, go to the practice space every week and actually have to write something in order to have something to put out. Um, and yeah, I did develop a new, a new habit of going to the practice space by myself every Sunday, which was thankfully in walking distance from my house and just committing to that time every week, even if I didn't know what I was going to work on. Like I just went and I would always end up getting something done there. And that structure was so important for me because I've never been able to really um, work on music consistently in my own apartment. I needed like a physical space for it. Um, So yeah, that was a great experience and one that I am not currently replicating because of COVID. Uh, But someday (laughs) I hope to get back in the space and uh, and start writing the next one. Totally. I don't want to derail it, but I remember at the beginning of the pandemic in my mind, I was like, man, everybody I know is going to be so wildly prolific because this is such an emotionally heavy thing and they're going to put out so much. And then I went down a spiral of beating the shit out of myself because I wasn't being. And then I realized that everybody was kind of in the same spot and having the practice of being able to go to a place with people and write it, it's just not an option. Yeah. And uh, I think we're all kind of, you know, kind of working with that. Mm-hmm. So in in uh, one of the essays that you wrote, I thought it was great where you talked about essentially imposter syndrome 
Um, and this idea of being motivated by two separate things when you were working on anything, you would use the uh, uh, example of being a gymnast. Uh, in this case, talking about songs, though, there's one where you said you didn't want to per- per- be perceived as being bad at something. And that was a fear. And that was a motivating factor to make a good song. But then what y- you settled on what is a song. And if I'm getting this right, it you're the, the reason you're doing it is to self-express and to um, express yourself and connect with others. And coming from that top down place, you roundabout said that you can't do it wrong. So, because that's all it needs to be, that's the requirement. So it has to just meet up to your expectations and actually express yourself. And I wonder if you could talk about the journey of landing there. That's definitely something we uh, in my band as songwriters run into a lot. Like while we're writing in the room, we'll think, damn, this will, I wonder what this will sound like live or wonderful people will like this. And then you kind of end up having a battle between how the song is going to be shared and what it means to you. Yeah. It's really crazy making when you try to like negotiate what you think is good and what your band may say is good against what you think other people are going to think is good or what they currently think is good. That's popular. Like that's just, I can't (laughs) do that. You know, there are some people who do specifically write to a certain genre or a certain trend or whatever to fit in with that. And that's not something I even have the ability to do as a musician. That's just not how my brain works to like copy or create that. So Um, it just doesn't make any sense for me to worry about those things. You know, like I'm hard enough to please myself. Um, and I work really hard on my songs. So if I get something to the point where I'm willing to show it to the band, that means I'm happy with it. And if the band's happy with it, then I try to, you know, something that helps me is to remember that like, I don't have unique tastes in the world. And especially between the four of us in my band, if we all like something, it's not like we have such like, unique, obscure taste that, that, that we're going to be the only four people who like this band. If all four of us like it with all different <laughs> tastes, like it's pretty likely there'll at least be a fifth person who will like it. There'll probably be some other people who will also like it, you know, like, uh, yeah, it'd be silly to think yeah. that like it's something that no one else could appreciate. And that's probably the case for, for most music, you know? Yeah. That's a really good point. I, uh, would we get so far down to spiral as to like, the an art age-old question of like is there art without the person who's receiving it so like you could make you could just sit in the room and jam with the four of you and be like that's good enough and then like why record it unless you had an expectation of someone else listening to it to an extent yeah uh, unless you're like one of those bands that just meets together and jams which that sounds pretty great too <laughs> yeah uh, it sounds like a lot less less pressure and as far as keeping up with other trends that a lot of that just sounds so exhausting, like trying to figure out exactly what people like, when they're going to like it. Yeah, no, no, no thanks on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like for me, songwriting is so lyric driven that it's always just about like, what am I expressing for myself? And like just the process, like for me, songwriting, if I did do it and never shared the songs, then I would still benefit, right? Because it's very therapeutic and allows me to process different experiences and kind of encapsulate each of them in a little song that I tie up with a bow. And it really does help me often move past a certain thing that has been weighing on my mind for a long time. Because just it's just kind of magical how once I find the right way to say it, then like it just exists in that format. And I've bottled it up. And, um, that's really meaningful to me, even if I don't share it with anyone else. Uh, but for me, songwriting and working with the band is a way to, to take that experience and put it into a form where I can, um, share it with other people. Totally. 
Hell yeah. Now, as a, as a fellow musician, I'm sorry for this, but I wanted to read some of the lyrics from Vocations uh, out loud because they actually it hit really hard uh, for me in the time of the position that I'm in in life right now with the podcast and with our band and with the rest of the world looking around saying, what are we going to do? What, what has become important now that all of these things have been taken away? But uh, the chorus or, is like, what do you do? What do you really do? With your time and your friends and your anger too, are you working it? Does it work for you? And it goes on and it really, to me, asked the question of kind of, at first when I was to, I thought I was in a situation of like beating yourself up and being like, well, what are you really doing? Is this really matter? And then it became kind of hopeful. So I was wondering if that's uh, really what you were getting across with it was like, is it a reexamining of um, and taking stock of what you're actually doing and what your almost purpose is? Yes, exactly. Because, um, yeah, the what do you do, what do you really do for me was just kind of comparing like just this standard old networking, what do you do, which people just mean like, <laughs> what's your day job with like, what do you exactly. really do as an artist, uh, as a person in the world? Like, what do you really care about? And um, yeah, like if you really think about that, then how does that translate into how you want to spend the next hour, the next day, the next week, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Get, be able to prioritize what's important. There's so many times where I find myself doing things I don't want to do because I am, uh, and I'm sure for a lot of other people, trying to live up to what you would say that you do when the, the first what you do, like the networking sense, mm-hmm. and then realize, well, that's not actually actually who I am. And that's totally fine to change that constantly. Yeah. Like that. Um, so you worked as a booker for the Chris Gethard show. Yes. What was uh, what was that like? Can you tell me how you landed on uh, into that job and what the kind of what your day to day was like with that? Yeah, that was a wild experience. So it was never my day job. Um, I work in the nonprofit sector, but in 2012, uh, Heidi, who plays cello in the band, uh, she and I were booking a lot of shows together in the DIY punk scene, specifically like feminist punk benefits, uh, and so we were meeting a lot of people through that. And we had a friend named Zane who was in a great kind of art punk band called Mind Troll. And he was just always doing like weird, wacky stuff. And he had played on this public access show, the Chris Gethard show. And at the time, like public access wasn't really on anyone's radar as like something where anything cool could be happening. Um, But he asked us to meet up one day and was like, hey, I played, my band played on this weird show and they want me to find the bands for it, but I'm like really busy. I know you guys are also busy, but do you want to like take turns finding bands to play? on this weird like late night show. Um, and we we're like, yeah, that's super cool. Um, so we got pulled into this whole <laughs> world of like late night public access where we would just get basically every band we knew cause it was every week. So we needed like almost 50 bands a year pretty much, uh, to show up at, uh, 11 PM on, uh, or maybe I can't remember now. Wow, it's so long ago. I don't remember exactly what time I filmed. But yeah, they'd have to show up like late at night on the far west side of Manhattan and uh, you know, bring all their equipment because there was no backline or anything and and just and play on the show. Um, and, and you never knew what the theme was going to be. So it could be like someone wrestling Chris. It could be a dominatrix, like just super weird stuff. Um, but people <laughs> loved it and word started to spread uh, and sort of to form a connection between this comedy scene which was also connected to ucb because chris and all the people on it were like ucb performers um this connection between that scene and like the diy punk scene Hmm? what exactly is sorry what is uh ucb oh yeah ucb is the upright citizens brigade theater it's one of the major improv theaters in new york and la um and 
Yeah. So I think often there isn't, or at least at that point, there people who were really into underground comedy and people who were really into underground music were often separate. And this really provided like a point of connection for those two things. So you had these comedy fans who were really getting into these random DIY punk bands that we had play on the show. And then uh, had music people like getting more involved in comedy. I started taking improv classes and ended up being involved in comedy for several years, which I never would have if I hadn't been working on the show. Um, and then after being on public access for a while, we did something that no one ever does except I think in Wayne's world, which is actually get a TV deal. So we were on um, fusion and then true TV for three seasons. So it was like a part-time job where I'd take a day off my job and go into the studio taking turns every three weeks with Heidi and Zane um, to do it in more of like a professional capacity and, and pay the bands and stuff. So cool. That's such a cool story. And I love uh, hearing about those doors opening up and pathways presenting themselves like you found yourself into comedy and taking improv classes, which I got to come back to and ask you about. So at this uh, uh, intersection of music and comedy, which to me in a weird way kind of makes sense that they would be together with the DIY kind of ethic and it being an art form that is essentially present, you know, like you could listen to a comedy record and of course you listen to records, but a lot of it's based around the show. Um, so interacting with all of those people, again, were you able to take um, anything from that experience and then apply it to being in a band? I'm sure you've met a million uh, PR people or booking agents or people pitching bands to you guys or is it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Lot, everyone, we're always being pitched, which is funny because, you know, it's not <laughs> like we were in some super high power position, but it was a cool coveted thing. So at any given point at a show or a taping or whatever, like, you could be accosted by a PR person or someone in a band and or everyone had a friend whose cousin had a band and just like constantly being pitched, um, <laughs> which was a, a weird experience. Um, but yeah, I mean with, with anything, like once you've been on one side of it, then you learn how to be on the other side of it. Right. So when you have sure. everyone like coming at you, telling you to give opportunities to their band or their friend's band or whatever, then you know what that feels like. And you know, maybe not to do that to other people who are in that position or how to, you know, <laughs> approach people that you want to network with. Um, and then, I mean, logistically, it's just, it's a lot. It was, it was a kind it was a nightmare, right? Like the booking part was fun, but then most of it yeah. was like logistics. So once you've handled that, then you, know what it's like to work with people who are on top of it and really good to work with. And you know what it's like to work with people who are not on top of it. So after that, you know, you have a lot of respect for anyone who has to coordinate anything, you know, and it, you understand, like if someone needs a stage plot or whatever <laughs> they need, just like get it to them, like just make their job easy because you appreciate it when other people made your job easy by just doing what you asked them to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's one thing that I kind of always, you know, it's been, become a meme for us is that uh, we know so many very talented musicians. We know some really incredible creative people and a lot of them didn't uh, get or aren't getting the success because of that, because of the inability to y work well with others, not from a malicious point or a point of like, you know, being an asshole, but just from the point of like you mentioned, somebody needs to get a stage plot, get the two of them, like things like that. Showing up on time, even, uh, is a thing that bands aren't the most famous for. And just that little bit extra of realizing what you can do to make the other person's job easier makes people really want to work with you. And that's something that we've tried to realize and, and make a benefit. So you got exposed to comedy and you actually dove in. So you took improv classes for what, four years? 
Yeah, it was really crazy. I just, I signed up for, or I started going to shows watching Chris and the other people from the show perform and I really enjoyed it. And then I said, you know what, I'm, I'm curious how this works. I'm curious, like sort of the formula for learning how to make up something funny on the spot on stage because there is a formula. And so I took a 101 class at UCB and then I just kept going. I took the four levels. I went into their advanced program. Um, I formed indie teams, which are like, oh, very few people are on official teams of the theater and everyone else, like students, you just, you form an indie team, same as like an indie band, you know, and you rent a rehearsal space and you hire a coach who's usually a performer from the theater and you practice. And then you, um, you find like bar basements and stuff where you can put together a show and you basically just perform in front of the other people who are performing and maybe like someone's spouse and someone's friend or whatever. Uh, so it's just like, it's a slog, but people love it because you have to, you have to practice, but you can't just practice like you do with your band and get it perfect and then perform like you practice in order to perform, but then you yeah. practice by performing because every single show is different and you're practicing skills rather than like a set. So it's a, it's an interesting art form. Totally. Yeah, that's super fast. And there's so much there that uh, I, I find super interesting. So it's kind of like a the way that UCB structured, if I'm getting it right, is kind of like a like an old school guild or something where you have this kind of um, central group that's teaching people. And then you, it's up to you to self-organize into groups that you then go and practice. And you're still affiliated with them and they teach you the live skills along the way. That sounds uh, that sounds pretty sick. Yeah, no but it idea. was really competitive, right? Because for a lot of people, the ultimate goal of doing it on their uh, own was course. to audition and get a spot on the theater teams. And there's very few of those. So um, I ended up quitting because not because I didn't enjoy, you know, the creative part, but because just the competition was so cutthroat and just like the whole social scene around it was really intense. And it's just different by nature when you're all competing with each other for the same thing than in music where it's like in theory i mean maybe you could think of bands as competing with each other but not really it's like yes only one band can like open that tour or whatever and your friends man might get it and not you but like you're happy for them and you'll do another one you know there's just so many shows and so many things you can do yourself that it's really collaborative um but just by nature like when you're hanging out with people who are all just like competing with you for the same thing it's weird um, and it's stressful and it just like, wasn't the best environment for me. Yeah, totally. I can imagine it'd be, it'd be cutthroat, especially it's kind of funny, maybe even a little bit ironic because it seemed that sounds so serious and intense, but the actual art form itself on the surface is the opposite. It's meant to yes. be funny and I don't know, bring people kind of like a relaxing thing. So yeah. It's maybe, weird. Uh, maybe one it's really... uh, rubber band pulls one way and then fires the other. Yes. It's like extremely serious oh, yeah. for something that is just like, making up random <laughs> stuff on stage uh that like will mostly never have a wide audience you know totally and also so the other part of that big ups for being able to do that i you know have enough trouble playing solo acoustic shows which i know you did for for quite some time uh, i really like being able to hide behind I don't know, feedback or whatever. Uh, but I can't imagine getting up and having to use your own, you know, your body language and just your speech and your communication skills sans music to be able to tell a story or to make people laugh like that. That's that's horrifying. I actually, uh, I had my own 
comedy potential comedy intersection that maybe I enacted on in a closer closer dimension than this one. But when I first moved to Philadelphia, a friend of mine was uh, got a bartending job at a place called the Raven Lounge, which is um, in Center City, and they had a second floor, but they didn't know what to do with. So this is like a weird Edgar Allan Poe themed bar, hmm. uh, and the second floor was extra Edgar Allan Poe themed. And they stuck my friend up there and he's like, we're going to figure something out. And we are, we had this neighbor friend, um, his name is Chris Cotton and he ended up be doing well as a, a comedian. Unfortunately he passed, but he was a, a hilarious comedian. And then I watched that open mic night that they started there grow into like a massive thing where hundreds of people would come constantly. And they'd always be like, go up, go up, go up, open a mic night. And I was like, there's no fucking way that I'm going to get up there <laughs> and just talk to people and hope that they don't think I'm really weird. But uh, I have a huge appreciation for that, and I don't know know how you guys pulled that off, or what you can, what kind of mindset you have to get in to be able to just go up and speak like that. Really collaborative. I mean, I could never do stand up. Uh, that is just like the most horrific, masochistic seeming thing that I can possibly imagine. Um, <laughs> and improv also can be horrific and masochistic, but like just being up there alone and sharing your own personal experience of your life and just having to bomb over and over and over to practice like that is some real tough stuff. But like with improv, ideally, you know, you really get along with and gel with the people in your group, you develop a large amount of trust um, and you hone your skills together so that when you do step out, um, you basically know what you're going to do. You know, you work within certain formats so that um, you just, once you sort of know the formula, then you can, you can just do it based on any suggestion and everyone always has each other's back. Like you, there's kind of like a code to never leave someone hanging, you know, and the whole yes and thing. Like if someone creates a situation, you always say yes and then you add to it. So you can't shoot someone down. You can't just like leave them. Um, so if everyone's on board with that level of like, you know, teamwork and you're locked in together, then you usually can create something that you at least have fun with. And ideally, if you're having fun, then, you know, the audience has fun too. Very cool. Yeah, totally. I didn't uh, think about that collaborative aspect or the fact that you can help each other up, you know, that you it wouldn't to, be yeah. as, like you said, masochistic nature, nature of, of doing regular standup. Because, I mean, it was the, the place that I went to regularly. It was mostly people doing standup by themselves and most of them didn't do a good job and it was it was painful yeah if it made me uncomfortable i can't imagine what it was like for them i wonder uh could you pull back the curtain a little bit on what you said about a formula or about like uh how that would work on stage like when you guys are sharpening these skills for that what would you do did you have like a script or guideline you mentioned the yes and approach to something yeah the uh the upright citizens brigade like style of improv is based on what's called the game of the scene which is basically like the thing that's funny um so when you start a scene like it's always two people who come out at the beginning of a show and they just sort of start talking and create a reality together for who they are and where they are and what they're doing and then when something weird happens someone points it out and you sort of establish what this weird thing is and what's funny about it. And then you can create a pattern. So someone isn't going to literally do the same thing, like the same like weird voice or whatever. But if someone like establishes like a weird worldview or like just like something that is funny because it wouldn't normally happen, then everyone else kind of pitches in and you keep trying to create that same like normal situation that's happening but then you look for opportunities for the weird thing to happen again. Um, and that's sort of what the game is, that you're constantly juxtaposing like um, what could be like realistic conversation between people or, or a normal situation, um, but with like something weird that keeps happening. 
Very cool. Yeah, that's super interesting. I never even thought, I mean, I know that it's an art form that people practice. Uh, it's one of those things I just never really thought about how you can sharpen it or how I'm sure, you know, greater minds than I have, have studied it and written down and found out what works. And that's, uh, yeah, it's super fascinating. It's a new, new, new door for me. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to take too dark of a turn, but this is the longest that I've ever now been in New York. Are you, is that where you are right now? Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, uh, how, how are things up there right now? Like, how's it looking now that it's spring? Is it? Spring is good. Yeah, it was beautiful out this past weekend. And I was out in the park and everyone was out in the park. And um, it makes a huge difference just in like general morale and and mental health um, for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's weird because it's hard to say like, how is it in New York? Because I just am in my neighborhood, you know, like I'm just in my one part (laughs) of North Brooklyn and I almost never leave it. it's really nice i might walk like into another neighborhood and back on the weekend um but this is you know by far the longest i've ever gone without going into manhattan i've only been in a handful of times mostly if i had to go to the doctor or something um and i used to go to manhattan every day i worked in upper manhattan so i had a really long commute i was always in different parts of the city and it's just such a weird experience um to just not go almost anywhere when the whole point of living here is that there's so many places to go so many amazing neighborhoods always stuff happening always shows every kind of culture and to just have that whole experience of living in new york reduced to just like being in your neighborhood thankfully i love my neighborhood and i've been fine working from home and walking around my area but uh it's just such an unprecedented way of experiencing the city totally yeah, as far as the neighborhood goes, it's been very similar uh, in where I live in South Philly. We moved in October to a slightly different neighborhood in South Philly. And it was a godsend because we're about two blocks away from the Italian market. So fortunately, I've been able to walk through there every morning and every night, basically, to get a semblance of, you know, seeing all the different people, knowing that still everything is still functioning. A lot of the other commercial sections are, are looking bad with, you know, half the bars and restaurants that opened in the last couple of years are, are closed. But with spring, just like that, it is coming uh, much better. It is funny, you mentioned you hadn't gone to Manhattan, and I realized that I have not been to basically any of the other neighborhoods in Philadelphia either for this entire time. Normally when I would go there uh, several times weekly, which is wild. Yeah, so it's really you, wild. You guys just put out a record in the middle of all of this. Uh, and normally when you put out a record and I was just talking on um, the last episode I did with uh, my dear friend, Ben Walsh, who plays in Tiger's Jaw, uh, they just put out a record as well. Um, it's gotta be tough to not be able to tour on the record. Do you guys have anything special planned as far as celebrating it? Um, we're going to do a listening party the night of the release, just on YouTube, hang out, play the record. Uh, that's it. We didn't have it in us to try to, get together safely and get tested and practice and tape something, you know, like power to the bands that have been able to get that kind of stuff together in the pandemic. But we were just like, we do not have the bandwidth or really interest to do that. Even though it's a bummer, the four of us haven't been in the same room since February, 2020, when we last played a show. Um, But you know, it's just a different (laughs) landscape. Bands have now been putting out albums for an entire year in the pandemic without being able to play shows. So um, and that's why our record was delayed for so long. It was going to come out a year ago, but our, our label decided to take a pause on putting things out just to sort of feel out what was happening and did a Patreon instead for a few months, which raised money for the bands and was super cool. Um, and now that they're putting out records again, they're just, 
you know, acknowledging that you have to take a different approach and it's not at the moment based around playing shows and touring. And, you know, if that means you press fewer records, cool. Like we're all just doing our best. We just want to put our music out there and hopefully still find ways to connect with people. Absolutely. I think that's a great, great attitude. Uh, when it is time to come back out swinging, do you have any uh, big plans? Do you have anything, not necessarily set in stone, but I know for us, we are definitely going to play some cities that we haven't played uh, that we've always wanted to play. And we're definitely going to not do nearly as many things that we feel meh about, you know, like we don't want to, we're going to prioritize doing the things that we were unable to do in this time because of that. I was wondering if you guys have anything on your, on your list. Like, do you want to go to Europe? Do you want to oh, wow. <laughs> particular bands that you just need to play with? You know, like, no, like, we haven't talked about it at all. Like, when it is safe to play a local show, we're just going to be so happy to play a local show. You know, we have so many friends here who are incredible <laughs> bands. And when people, you know, from our local scene post about it, they're just like one of our friends made a post about like this one little venue we play at and being like, I just want to be at this venue with like these three bands, like us and a couple other friends bands that play together. And everyone was like, yeah, we want to be there. Karaoke after like everyone got super nostalgic and like, we just miss our scene. We miss our friends. We miss our local venues. And I think like, that's all that's on our mind. Just like wanting to get back to that and knowing that that probably will come back before touring and especially overseas touring, but even like domestic touring, you know, like it's everything has been so unknown that we're just happy to be putting the record out. And whenever we can play a show with our friends again, we'll be really happy to do that. Absolutely. I, I think you hit the nail on the head for me as well. I can't wait to just get into a one of the venues here in the neighborhood with my friends. See the people who I are only my show friends, you know, people that yes. I only ever see at shows that you can build uh, strong bonds with. That's one of my favorite parts about this scene since the beginning is is that uh, type of social space existing for everybody. And I just can't fucking wait for it to come back. I know. Um, it's really so hard. Did you grow up in New York? I did grow up in Brooklyn, yeah. yeah. Cool, cool. So now I can't wait to ask you this because I've never asked anyone uh, from Brooklyn this yet. Did you have any kind of myths or urban legends coming up when you were a teenager that uh, stick out? There's only one kind of urban legend that I can think of. It's not that exciting, but um, I grew up in, in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and there was this building called the Montauk Club near my school. It was like this really incredible gothic building with really ornate windows and stuff. And I think it's just like a supper club, but no one I knew had ever been in it. And, um, and kids would always be like, there, there are ghosts in the Montauk club. There are ghosts on the sixth floor of the Montauk club. I feel like I remember people saying, and then later I looked at the building and there wasn't a sixth floor. So I'm like, <laughs> either it was just wrong or like, there's more to it that I don't know. And there are ghosts on the sixth floor. Um, yeah, that's all. <laughs> oh, that, that sounds like something concocted by like, you know, somebody's older sister. Yes. Was like, yeah. The sixth floor has all the ghosts. Yeah. Down full well, there's nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite parts about the kind of like myths and urban legends is how often they're the same kind of fears that prop up in all the kids or the same kind of interest and vague notions of the same stories that just get a little bit of a local twist on it. And uh, I like that yours is like a big building, the Montauk building. It just sounds ominous, you know? Yeah. I, I Googled it today to see if there, because uh, you had mentioned wanting to talk about urban legends. I Googled it to see if anything came up with like Montauk Club ghosts. And it didn't, except that there was one person who had written uh, apparently a self-published book 
about uh, like Brooklyn ghost stories. And uh, there was a table of contents and there was a chapter called the mischievous leprechauns of the Montauk club. <laughs> and I don't know what it is because that's all there was, but I'm like, huh, I'm curious if anyone wants to go to barnesandnoble.com and buy a self-published book about Brooklyn ghosts. Maybe you can find out about the mischievous leprechauns of the, the Montauk club. <laughs> That's amazing. I think you got the, to the bottom of the uh, of the origin of the mystery there. That's, that's <laughs> so good. I wish it the, it stayed as leprechauns. It would have been a lot more fun. That is really funny. It's like how many more, I don't know yeah. how young this person is, if they're another generation and it's, and it's turned from uh, from ghosts to leprechauns. So great. But uh, yeah, Kira, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's been a, a, a great uh, discussion. I did want to ask you one last thing. If you had any advice for anybody who is coming up to early version of yourself or somebody who is looking to start a band and, and release a record like you have? Um, I guess I would just say surround yourself with people that you really like and, uh, you know, where you respect each other and like each other for who you are and are on the same page about what you want to do musically and what your goals are. Um, cause that'll make it a lot easier, uh, down the road. Yeah, I, I agree. I back that very much. Incredible. Well, thank you so very much uh, for joining me, and I can't wait to uh, uh, talk to you again. I wish you the best best of luck on the release of the record. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Once again, their new record, Vocations, will be out this Friday or today, March 26th, on streaming platforms and for vinyl pre-order via AF Records. You can check out their website, earlyrisermusic.com. For more information about that and to check out their uh, fun music video for the title track of the record. And once again, I can't wait to share the announcement with you guys. Huge thanks to Pat Breyer, Queen Jesus, for doing the intro song. And for Beth Ann, to Beth Ann Downey for producing the episode. And I'm going to cut my hair. I just decided right now while recording this, after over a year of not cutting my hair, it's fucking getting chopped off there, bud. Uh, once again, if you want to reach me for any reason at all, just email me tom at futurefriday.net, and I will do my best to get back to you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from The Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? 
I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.